Welcome to the Datebook Podcast. I'm your host, theater critic Lily Janik. Today, as part of our series, The Artist's Life, we're talking to local actor Siobhan Doherty, who's about to be in Cutting Ball Theater's revival of its 2012 hit, Tenderloin, which is a work of documentary theater about the SF neighborhood the theater calls home. But if you happen to be traveling on Wednesday, December 19th, you might have seen Siobhan in a still theatrical but very different context at SF International Airport, where the marketing staff brings in actors to entertain harried passengers after they've made it through security. We talked to Siobhan today about these and other gigs she pieces together to make it work as an artist in the Bay Area. You'll hear us mention a photographer named Mark whose work helped inspire Tenderloin. That's Mark Ellinger. You'll also hear Siobhan mention something called EMC points or equity points, which refers to the process by which an actor racks up a certain number of credits to join Actors' Equity Association, which is the American Union of Stage Actors. Let's get started. So, welcome Siobhan. (laughs) Thank you. So, you were in the original 2012 run of Tenderloin, and you're credited as a co-writer on the project, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So can you uh, like rewind back and tell us a little bit about what it was like to create that show and prepare for it, especially in contrast to like other acting projects you've done? Yeah, uh, I think that's one of the reasons Tenderloin has, among many other reasons, become really near and dear to me is because we were all in charge of going out into the community, interviewing people, and then um, embodying those people later. And so uh, we started with some leads. Cutting Ball had some leads. Um, a photographer named Mark, uh, who used to live in the Tenderloin and used to be on the streets, um, kind of turned his life around through photography and gave us a lot of leads and really loves the neighborhood, loves how it looks, loves the people in it. And um, from there, after meeting those people, we kind of just kept expanding our circles. And we would do interviews with those people and also interviews with people that we met in the neighborhood, just on the street. And yeah, I I was very fortunate to meet people who I'm never really going to forget. What was it like doing the interviews? Have you ever done anything like that before? No, I hadn't really done any documentary theater uh, or really interviewing. So we did talk about interview techniques before we went out. And... One of the biggest techniques that they taught us is really listen. It's easy to get nervous about there being silence and you want to fill the silence. So you jump in before maybe getting the chance to get a deeper part of the story. And uh, I, I found that to be really true. And the other thing that was surprising about interviewing people was they were excited to tell their story. Uh, most people... Once they trust that you're there for good reasons and are very interested in hearing what they have to say, they really open up in surprising ways. And you think you're maybe going to have to draw them out more, but I found the opposite to be true. And so you, in addition to interviewing these folks, you were trying to recreate their mannerisms, their speech patterns, even kind of down to a transcript of how they spoke. Is that right? Right. So while you're interviewing, a small part of your brain is also trying to watch what they're like, because we didn't 
videotape these. We did audio record them, and I used the audio recordings a lot, but we didn't videotape them. And you're watching what they do. You're watching for things that stick out to you. So you're never going to be able to get a perfectly accurate representation, but there are things that people do that, that stand out. So if you can capture three, four of those things, you know, you're on your way to creating some kind of portrait for them. What's one example you remember of one of your interviewees, like a, a physical mannerism or something that did stick out to you? Well, to be honest, Marianne, she's a massage therapist for the homeless. She was an incredible woman. She actually stayed very still. And I think that that was, I think she has really great control over her body and her speech. She didn't really break up her speech with a lot of ums and ands, which is something you realize when you transcribe oh, <laughs> I don't speak in complete sentences, or most people don't. But Marianne actually really was able to do that in a way that was fascinating to me and kind of a joy to replicate on stage someone who's so present. I have to say, I was hoping she would come up. I didn't remember that character's name, but six years later, I still remember her because in every conversation or article I've been a part of or come across dealing with homelessness, it had never really occurred to me that's one thing, one of the many things missing in their lives is human contact, just that sense of physical touch um, and a loving, uh, gentle touch. And you just conveyed that the control you mentioned a minute ago, there there was like just a total serenity and generosity about your demeanor when you were that character. Uh, it, it really gave a whole new dimension to how I thought about homelessness. What do you, what else do you remember from Marianne? <laughs> Marianne, I mean, I could do a whole play about Marianne. She told me basically her whole life story. I mean, she started from the beginning and told me about growing up and told me that a lot of her inspiration came from her father because he used to serve people in the community. They were very poor, but yet he still felt like it was very important to share some of what they had with members of the community and that that made a really deep impression on her. And her mom was ill for many years, so he was also caretaking for her. And he was able to do it, she said, in this way that felt like... Um, very generous and and that that was just the way you approach the world and so I think that that's where she got it and and then she talks about this whole journey of self-discovery so she wanted to learn about herself so she went to school and she studied religion she also studied dance she said she had no interest in becoming a dancer but she wanted to know how her body moved oh interesting (laughs) And then from there, from the body, she got to um, massage, and she started off doing massage for more traditional clients, Uh, and then she just felt like that wasn't enough. She really has had this drive to figure out the edge, like what what is the edge of this experience, and who are the people that need it the most? They're not the ones showing up at the door. And so she went to India, and she worked with Mother Teresa and Mother Teresa was like massage is soft and a luxury and you're not going to do that here 
So she Whoa. she had a very rude awakening. Like, Whoa, all it was right, about, Mother Teresa. <laughs> yeah. It was, about, okay. it was about caring for people, but you, you're very austere, right? You've got a cot, and you've got a tin cup, and you've got a blanket. And and so she she did all of those things, but in a very slow and loving way. And at before she left, Mother Teresa noticed that and said, you really you know, care through your touch. And so that's why she created that organization in San Francisco called Care Through Touch. She really just brought up the idea of being a whole person. And I agree that I hadn't really thought about that in terms of homelessness, that having a bed is important, having food is important, but also not being seen as a person can stunt you coming back into society. And how can you be seen as a full person and feel recognized and cared for? Do you remember what audience response was like from the 2012 run? Like, what were some things that spectators told you afterwards? I have a blur memory of people coming up to me afterwards and saying that it really opened up their eyes and they saw the neighborhood in a different way, which I think happened for all of us on stage. And so we are very glad that it happened for the audience. But I think the specific memories for me, we had a wall behind the theater in the in the hall and people could write on it their reflections afterwards and it collected them throughout the show and at the end of the run on closing night you know me and the other actors we went back and looked at the board and what people had written and people had written the most incredible things there was a woman who said my brother was homeless and you really you know i i felt like you normalized this experience of of either being homeless or having a homeless relative. Oh wow. Yeah. And and uh and and someone literally wrote I felt afraid in the tenderloin and and now I I feel more open towards it. I mean they they wrote that down and and people wrote I don't know, people just wrote all kinds of things about what it meant to them. So now coming back to the show 6 years later and this is a shortened version of the show it's an hour long and it's partly going to be in the exit on taylor cutting ball ball space but it's also going to be done in a lot of community organizations right yeah um oh and is marianne going to be in this one i hope so oh i I think so yeah i haven't seen the the rewritten script yet but i i think it would be hard to leave her out yeah Even, even just a little bit yeah yeah for sure uh, so what has it been like to return to this material after all this time? Well, I'm thrilled that Cutting Paul is doing it again. I've I've been emailing them maybe once every couple of like every year or every two years being like, hey, are you guys bringing it back? <laughs> um, because I just think that not everybody got to, a chance to see it. And I think that the issues that it brings up are only getting more intense about people's understanding of that neighborhood and um, new businesses and tech sort of coming into that neighborhood and how it's changing. And I think I'm very excited that people are going to get the chance to see it again. And maybe in some future iteration, we'll get to do new interviews, right? I mean, that would be a dream for me to get to revisit some of those people that we met or, you know, talk to people about how it's going now and like watch that transition. I think people who are watching will get to see that. So they'll see the 2012 version and they'll be able to reflect about, oh, this has changed or this hasn't changed. Yeah. 
Yeah. So when we were emailing, um, you mentioned that one of your gigs, which is through Each One Reach One, you actually found out about or got connected to because of Tenderloin. Yeah. So how did that happen? <laughs> yeah. So we had an actor who started off and then couldn't actually take part in the show. I think he had a full-time job and it just wasn't working out. His name is David Skillman. And he had worked with Each One Reach One and wrote to us as a cast and said, hey, this is a great opportunity for actors. You get to read the plays of these incarcerated youth and then there's free pizza afterwards. <laughs> and everybody, you know, sort of talks about, you know, everybody gets to visit with each other afterwards. And so I, I thought, wonderful. So I went and that was, yeah, back in 2012. And I was immediately hooked because these youth go through this two-week playwriting boot camp, basically. And the intention is that the play has to be about something that's meaningful to them. Mm-hmm. Or we highly, highly encourage that. And then at the end, these professional actors come and read it, and they give voice to these emotions that teenagers would never want to show themselves. You can tell that they're very, very excited to have their words spoken. They might be hiding it a little bit, but, you know, you can tell. Favorite subject of a play from them? <laughs> from each one, each one? Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, one example that uh, Dave Garrett, our playwriting instructor of many years, brings up oftentimes is we only write plays in metaphor. We have them write plays in metaphor. So no human characters. Mm. And we do this for a couple of reasons. One, it makes them be more creative. They have to figure out how a dog would swear, right? <laughs> <laughs> or like what a dog wants most in life, right? And translate their human metaphor into this other metaphor. And then, or their human experience into this other metaphor. And then uh, also it gives them a bit of a mask. I'm writing about this dog. I'm not writing about me. And, and also it lets them talk about things that really matter to them, but they wouldn't be allowed to talk about otherwise, like... So the example Dave uses is there's a dolphin who has a salt problem. <laughs> and and uh, it's, it's this student's mom, right? So this dolphin has a salt problem, and there's the son who kind of represents the student, who I think is something that can go between the water and the beach. And then the dad is a volcano, and so you have these really vivid metaphors of like, what is this person's dad like that they're a volcano and this mom is has a salt problem and this kid feels really stuck in the middle, right, in the waves. And so I, I just, I think that that's really, these kids sort of tap into this poetry whether they even really realize it or not. Now, you work with students in a whole bunch of organizations, <laughs> oh my gosh, um, through Killing My Lobster, mm -hmm. through Word for Word, but you also do a lot of kind of training via role-playing, future doctors at Stanford and UCSF, mm -hmm. and that's uh, called standardized patient work, is mm -hmm. that right? Um, you've also trained teachers and police officers. Yes, yes. So how did you get into that, uh, that line, that the, side the, hustle? The role playing? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that started with standardized patienting. So I think TBA might have had an ad in the back 
pages saying and uh this is theater bay area which uh used to have a lovely monthly magazine yes when i first moved here it still had the magazine form and i think in the back it said actors wanted for standardized patienting and i didn't know what that was but yeah what what is that (laughs) well it's exactly that you're you you are pretending to be a patient and you are either working with brand new medical students so baby doctors they're so little yes (laughs) so some of them must be like 22 yes oh man they're very young and they put on the white coat and they feel like a complete fraud oh but poor little doctor this is how they learn yeah and they they are practicing both physical exam skills so sometimes you're just a body like they need to figure out how to find a pulse or sometimes they're practicing having a hard conversation and sometimes they're practicing both how do they how do they meet a new patient gather a medical history and do their physical exam without acting like a robot right? <laughs> being able to fuse those two together are a lot of them robotic yes in oh. the in the beginning yes they're very robotic and i think one of the things i found early on is that you know you get these poor like young medical students especially the young male medical students and they have to do a heart exam on you and they have to like put the stethoscope near your breast and they're very nervous about oh. that <laughs> don't know how to ask for it and their uncomfort is so discomfort is so visible that it makes you uncomfortable but how else would you get past that except by doing it right, right? by getting some practice and learning that it's okay to say may I place my stethoscope here or I'm going to be listening here and pointing to that part of the body and, you know, making it more comfortable for them and for everyone. So we patients everywhere should all be grateful to you for absorbing our future doctor's initial discomfort. Yes, yes, I think so. <laughs> I mean, I think the things that I've I've worked with them on are range from being a body, which is kind of the most simple, to... The most difficult case I've ever done was at Samuel Merritt University, and it was a fetal demise case. I I don't think I even know what fetal demise is. Yeah, so I have a, a pregnant belly, and I and I come in, and I'm wearing the gown, and I get in bed, and I think I'm about to deliver a baby as this patient. Mm-hmm. I'm nine months. I'm ready to go. Yeah. Things have been moving. And then the nurses or the nurses in training have to inform me that there is no longer a heartbeat. And I, I have to have a reaction to that. And, and they have to figure out how to be there for me in, in that time. I think one of the most interesting things about standardized patient work is it creates a space for grief hmm. or anger or other emotions that patients might have that the medical staff wants to just move on to the next thing or mm-hmm. tell you it's going to be okay or you know they're deeply uncomfortable yeah most people are yeah and yeah so how do you how do you breathe it's okay this person's upset i'm going to give them a moment instead of rushing in to try to fix it right away hmm do you have to learn like a lot of medical symptoms and terminology yes. in order to do this work well yes and no we get the whole you know case profile so we know what's wrong with us and we know a lot of the medical terms but we come in as patients who are pretending to not really know very much we just know our own symptoms so you end up actually learning a lot about medicine and exam techniques but 
you you kind of play dumb when when you're with the students. So when you're with your own doctors now, are you like totally <laughs> judging them? You're like, oh, you, you should have had a little bit more, a little bit more standardized patient training. It is it is a little funny to go and think you didn't even make eye contact with me when you walked into the room. Ooh. <laughs> that's, Ooh, minus that's, points right off the bat. Yeah. Ouch. Yeah. I have to say, after that fetal demise case, they're not all that hard, but that was a particularly hard one. I went home and I watched Moana, and that was all I could do for the rest of the day. So, you know, self-care is very important. And how is training, like, teachers and police officers different? Or is it... Yeah. Is it kind of the same no matter the profession for you? It's I, I was trying to think about what what is the through line between all of these things. And I, I think that a big part of it is what actors do, which is being able to switch into someone else's perspective and think about what it's like from that other perspective. And so you're giving other groups practice with doing that. So for police officers, uh, it was a hostage situation and they had to gain my trust but still get this information out of me that might um, make my brother go to jail. So how do they play this game of gaining my trust, but also getting the information that they need? How did they do? <laughs> well, most of them did really well, actually. This is kind of an advanced program. Okay, okay. So they don't send you into, you know, hostage right away. You Tell know. me the information now. <laughs> ah. I, I was a little nervous because my very first thing with the police was in interrogation tactics. And I thought, oh, great, this is going to be frightening. A long day of just being interrogated. They they were so nervous about my feelings that I don't think they actually really interrogated me very intensely. <laughs> I think they, they were like not wanting to hurt my feelings, but I'm very happy when any program uses actors to, to have this kind of experiential learning because I, I think it can only help you grow. And I, I think that having these conversations that are so difficult in low stakes environments then really sets you up much more for success when it's high stakes and someone's life is on the line. So do you feel like you're really using your skills as an actor, like the same skills you would bring on stage at Cutting Ball? Or does this does this feel like a totally different skill set? I feel pretty lucky in that when I found standardized patienting, it really felt like I was using my same skills. And in fact, I was building because because you're getting into the mindset of this character and you're playing this character it's an improv scene between you and a medical student and they might not be doing their part so great but you're gonna <laughs> do your part <laughs> you've probably had that in a rehearsal room as well once yeah, in your life once in a while or you've got a reader who's reading very flat and so you gain an additional skill set, which is how to give feedback and notice how you were feeling while this happened and pinpoint exactly what it is that made you feel uncomfortable. Made me feel uncomfortable when you clicked your pen a zillion times or it made me feel uncomfortable when you sat so close to me while we were talking or touched me without asking first or assumed that my partner was a male, right, or any, any of these things. So you get really good at having that part of your brain going as well at the same time. Oh, wow. And that that must I'm really impressed that they empower you as the actor to give comments to like the doctors, the police officers, the teachers. That's that's amazing. Um, and it's not just like somebody with a clipboard off behind a two way mirror or whatever. No, no. You get to give feedback and you try to keep it really specific 
focused on how you felt and what was the behavior. And then then their teachers, you know, whenever whatever scenario this is as well, give give them some feedback too. And that must you said that's a new skill set that must be really valuable to you as like a director or even just as an actor as well. Yeah, I think I think it has been. I, I I'm very happy that I found standardized patienting. The thing you're missing with standardized patienting is an audience, right? And the joy of like coming up with this together in a cast and all that. So, of course, it isn't really a replacement, but it's a great way to still use your skills and make some money. Now, I have to say, of all your gigs that you told me about before you came into the Chronicle for this podcast, the one that tickled my funny bone the most was the uh, work you do at SFO. (laughs) So a few times a year, San Francisco International Airport brings in actors to entertain passengers while they are already past security. Yes. Uh, This is amazing. How long have you been doing this? I started this about a year and change ago. So about a year and a half ago. And what's the program's name? So it doesn't really have a name. It's really the marketing department at at SFO. They like having, they have a budget for cultural events. And you're a cultural event. (laughs) Yes. So now I'm helping to produce cultural events. And typically what that is at most airports and used to be the case at SFO is music. You see a guy with a guitar, a person on a piano, okay, that yeah. kind of thing. I, I do feel like I've seen that before, especially around the holidays. Yes, especially around the holidays. But they had the idea, well, let's do something a little bit different and maybe even incorporate it onto social media and try actors. So I knew someone who worked at the PR firm that they hire to do their marketing events. And she says, you know tons of actors. Send me some ideas. Send me some actors. So our first event was called Bad Poetry Today. And we had two actors dressed up as like beatniks. And (laughs) we had bad poetry actually written by Megan Cohen. We commissioned Megan Cohen to write some bad poetry for the airport. Major shout out to Megan Cohen, another cutting ball artist and playwright whom uh, we were talking about before we got on the air. Because why not talk about Megan Cohen all the time? Anyways, (laughs) please continue. That's how I feel. She wrote some amazing bad poetry. It's shockingly hard to write good bad poetry. Oh, (laughs) yeah, 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 yeah. But so we we had them reading it and then we also had some mad libs and other forms where people could write their own bad poetry and we actually got people to write poetry and then we would read it over and if it was safe to read we would we would read it over the microphone and we had one guy who was uh delayed and he stayed with us for like two hours he just really enjoyed hearing the poetry and like writing new poems and I, I think one of the actors might have had a crush on him. I don't know. <laughs> it was just, it was it was really kind of magical. And actually, Radhika, who... Um, oh, yeah. Another The Artist's Life profilee, I guess I should say, interviewee. Yeah. Yeah. Radhika was at, she was one of the actors at that, <laughs> at that event. And she made a comment, which <laughs> I don't think the airport was thrilled about, but I thought was very funny, about, you know... We were posted just past security, so people had literally just made it past security. They were, like, putting their shoes on, still buckling their belts. And she said, congratulations on making it through security, especially if you're brown. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Radhika, I get it. That's very funny, but, you know, let's just keep it a little more. (laughs) 
safe for the airport. Gotcha. Gotcha. So what are some of the other things you've uh, done through the airport? Oh, man. So many fun things. We had a witch and a wizard photo booth. (laughs) So like kids, we, we got like over 200 people that came by and took their pictures in this photo booth with a witch and a wizard. I would like for to immortalize my time at the airport in this photo booth. It was great. We had a That's whole great. set. We had like, you know, like, uh, yeah, we had a whole Halloween set behind us. One of my favorite events was last holidays. We teamed up with the WAG Brigade. Do you know what the WAG Brigade is? I don't, but it sounds like I should. Yes. It is the team of therapy dogs that oh. go through SFO. Oh. And... We had a backdrop of like a ski lodge and we had actors in like sweaters and we had some chocolate to hand to people and we treated it like a ski lodge and we had a big fuzzy rug and we had the therapy dogs out so you could hang with the therapy dogs who all had like little sweaters (laughs) and like little jingle bell hats on and then you could also take pictures in front of the backdrop because it was a great backdrop and you can then tag SFO if you want or not. I mean, it's really just about calming people down at the airport or creating it, like breaking people out of their routines a little bit or just taking a breath. You could see that people would walk by and they'd look at the therapy dogs with this longing look in their eye and you'd say, come come over. Yes, it's for you. (laughs) Come, (laughs) pet pet the therapy dog. And it was, yeah, it was a blast. You know, I never thought I'd say this, but I kind of, that makes me feel like I want to go hang out at the airport. Well, yeah, me too. We taught a dance class. There's there's an incredible uh, dance teacher. His name is Rory Davis. And he teaches a class down at ODC called Roryography. It's amazing. He calls it like, what's that instructor from the 80s? Oh, God, I can't remember her name. But it's basically like super easy moves set to like music from the 80s and super, very easy to follow. He came and taught it at SFO. And we got people out on the dance, I mean, the dance floor. Quote, unquote. (laughs) The food court of SFO. (laughs) We got people out dancing. This one woman came up to us and said, I'm flying back from visiting my daughter. She's very, very ill. And I I usually dance every morning. I was like, well, good for you, lady. (laughs) That's really impressive. But she said it's been about two, two weeks, three weeks since I've danced. And it felt so good to dance with you guys. And it... It was amazing to me, like, we're, we're having this silly event at the airport, and, and yet there was still, it was actually kind of meaningful in a way. This woman brought her son over who, you know, had developmental issues, and he was dancing, and she was dancing, and you could tell that, like, it was lightning, whatever was happening for them at the airport, you know, because it's a very challenging place to be. So you don't have, like, the gruff, like, I'm in a hurry, get out of my way, you <laughs> actors kind of passengers yes we, we have, oh you do we, we have them too yeah they they definitely there are people people generally are like are you selling something they think we're selling something <laughs> and then we're like no we're not selling something we're just having fun and they're suspicious and then some of them join us and some of them just smile and some of them are like get out of my way i've got somewhere to be so, so you have to have kind of a, a thick skin yeah yeah i think you have to have a thick skin as a performer in general yeah how, how did you get into theater in the first place? I actually grew up in Palo Alto, mm-hmm. and I went to Gunn High School. There's a, an amazing theater teacher there who I think is still there named Jim Shelby. He really 
treated you like an adult. He, he treated you with respect and gave us really challenging material and expected us to do well. And I think a lot of us did well because of that. Like what? What was your material? Well, hmm. I mean, I think he gave us kind of adult material. We did a play called Black Comedy uh, by Peter Schaefer, I think. And, oh, okay. And there was a sex scene in it. Oh, my. Oh, my. <laughs> and you couldn't see it because it was behind this wall, but you could see some feet. And I just remember thinking, well, this is very adult. And I'm sorry for my mom having to sit <laughs> in the theater watching this. Um, you know, it was campy. But, yeah, it was a little adult. But but in general, the the play that made the biggest impression on me, we did Merchant of Venice. And... Uh, he had an Asian female student playing Shylock, and she nailed it. And you could tell that she was tapping into something really meaningful for her and that together, you know, they had found what it means to feel othered. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's a very challenging play, right? I mean, it, the... <laughs> for sure. Yeah. And I watched it as a freshman and thought, wow, these kids who are not that much older than me, seniors, juniors, are, are doing things I, I could only dream about. So that that's why I got started. And and then I went to NYU and I loved it, but it was very cold <laughs> and very, uh, you have to hustle to survive out there. Mm-hmm. And it's, you come audition, get in, get out, that kind of thing. And I really wanted to come back to the Bay Area and see what it would be like, see if I could get some equity points, see if the scene would be a little less cutthroat and the weather would be, I knew the weather would be a little better. And uh, so, yeah, so I came back in actually 2010, 2011. And have you found that the scene here is less cutthroat than what you experienced in New York? Yes, by a lot. The I'm sure that there are places in New York that are not like this. You know, I was a very little fish in a very big pond Mm -hmm. when I was there. But the first couple auditions I had out here, directors would say, so tell me more about yourself after the audition. And I was so used to just like leaving the room immediately that I was taken off guard. Yeah. And I didn't have an answer. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But not only were, did it feel like people had more time and there were, the community was a little, because it's a smaller pond, I think there, people know each other more. There's more Mm -hmm. opportunity um, you know, for anonymity, people people really mostly know each other once you start working out here for a while. Mm-hmm. I have found that other actors are very supportive. So Molly Benson, um, who's a great Bay Area actress, she, does, she works with Word for Word. She was big in voiceover, and she submitted me. She told my agent, we were both represented by the same agency, she said, she put my name forward and said, you should hire Siobhan. She's mm. she's she's great. She's a friend of mine. You should hire her, even though we're in competition. And I think that there's a lot of places where that that wouldn't necessarily happen, right? Where it's like the scarcity is so intense that it's like I I can only fend for myself. I think out here people really wish each other well, um, and if they don't get the job and someone else gets the job, I think there's a real spirit of like, well, good for you, you know. And I think there's a little more camaraderie out here than out there. Wow. Good for you and that it would be genuine. That's amazing. Yeah. And I'm sure that that's not always the case. Sure. I'm sure sometimes there's, ugh, why did that person get the job? I mean, I myself have had those thoughts sometimes too. You're not an angel <laughs> I'm not an angel. Definitely not. But 
I will say that in general, I've had a lot of support from people that were going out for the same role. And that means a lot to me. Yeah, absolutely. In looking over all your different gigs, though, and just imagining what it must be like to have all those plates spinning in the air, to cobble together like a patchwork <laughs> of different ways of making money and different ways of practicing your craft. I I wonder like what what keeps you going in moments when like your schedule's a mess or you don't get enough sleep. Yes. That's a good question. I think about that. I teaching is really rewarding. I I teach middle schoolers often with word for word, mm-hmm. but it it is exhausting. Yeah. And then if you're in a rehearsal, you teach all day, you expend all this energy, and then at night, you're you're expending more if you have a nighttime rehearsal, and you're, it's exhausting. What I've had to do is, if I find that the grind is getting to be too much, then I have to honestly maybe stop theater for a little while so that I can have some free time, rest up, get hungry again, and come back to it. I've also found that I need to maybe not just spend my time in jobs. I need to maybe make a little bit more money at some of my theater jobs so that I can have a little more bandwidth. Yeah. And I think that that's challenging, especially when you're someone who's so drawn to work that feels meaningful and working in other fields feels a little bit maybe like selling out because you know that you could be helping these people that really benefit and and don't always get arts education. Yeah. The splitting plates thing is very real. <laughs> there have been times where I thought, wow, I didn't know that being an actor would mean I sleep in my car all the time <laughs> because I'm going from one job, you know, straight to another and I and I have to get a little bit of rest. Wow. Yeah, I, I was going to ask if you had, like, any real-world wisdom or, like, encouragement or, like, f- fact you never would have guessed that you would tell your younger self. My big fear around selling out, I think, is self-imposed in a way that isn't super necessary. Yeah. <laughs> I I think that, of course, you don't want to be working for someone that you don't believe in and you it's okay to have integrity and it's okay to have some morals around where you work but it's also okay to get monetary value for what you do it's okay to pursue that so that you have more bandwidth to do the other jobs and what I've realized is a big part of empathy and being there for other people means that you 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 have to be there for yourself. It sounds so hokey. <laughs> no, no, it's but really it's true. true. I mean, what are you yeah. going to draw from? Yes. Marianne, Marianne actually talked a lot about this because I said, Marianne, what do you do for self-care? You, or I didn't say self-care, but I said, how do you handle the emotional drain of working with these people and really being there for them when they are at these really difficult places in their lives. And she said, you know, I I spend time really sitting with myself and really building that well back up. And I make sure to do that because if I don't, 
then I can't continue my work. And one of the reasons I keep doing it, theater that is, or, or all the spinning plates, is really the, the learning opportunities that theater provides. So I got to meet Marianne and have this incredible interview with her. And then I've literally used her uh, ideas in my own life since then. And I just finished a show with Molly Benson and, and some other women at Piano Fight. And we use the opportunity to learn about our own family histories and learn about um, women's history in America. And Oh, I, what was this show? It was called Steam. Cool. Yeah. But without theater, would I have had the chance to really read this book about Americans' women's history and figure all that out? Would I have met Marianne? Would I have seen the Tenderloin in a different light because I was so deeply involved in that show? You know, pro- probably not. I mean, it really does broaden your world in a way, like travel. It's travel you can do from a theater seat. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. And I wish I had some answer for all the spinning plates, but I can say right now I'm at a point where I've built up all these ways to stay afloat out here. And I and I am trying to simplify a little bit. I'm I'm I am trying to like not have ten jobs, but maybe three jobs. <laughs> that that sounds doable. The great move from ten jobs to three jobs. Yes. Siobhan, thank you so much for joining us in the Chronicle podcast recording studio today. You can catch her next at the exit on Taylor in Cutting Balls Tenderloin. Siobhan, thanks so much for being here. Great. Thank you so much for having me. This show is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Our theme music is by Stephen Boyle. This show is produced by me. For more theater coverage, you can follow me on Twitter at Lily Janik. Check out all of our coverage at sfchronicle.com. 